Braves, Bulldogs, Falcons, Yellow Jackets, Hawks, Eagles. From the heart of Georgia, it's the Bill Shank Show. Happy Monday. Welcome to our program. Another week of sports talk. I'm Bill Shanks here on the Superstations all over the state on the radio. Making down at Tifton, Brunswick, and Savannah. And all over the world online at thesuperstations.com. We appreciate you being with us. We have a lot to talk about on the program today. The day after the Super Bowl, sometimes this is one of the slowest periods of the sports year. But we've got plenty to talk about. Don't worry about that. Because two days from now, on February the 14th, yeah, it's Valentine's Day and all that sappy crap, but also it's it's the day pitchers and catchers report to spring training. It's that time when baseball fans like J-Rad get ready for Christian Pache and Drew Waters to report, oh wait, they're gone. Yep, it's almost that time. Cannot wait for baseball season last night. At the end of the Super Bowl, I tweeted out that it's baseball season. Let's play baseball and hashtag Braves because I think we're going to have a really good season. I was just watching before this hour started the documentary on MLB Network about Johnny Bench. And, you know, one of the first games, I think the first game I saw, I, I think it was the first game I saw, I... In 1978, I saw the Reds and the Giants in Atlanta. So there was two trips in 1978 from Waycross. And I think the Reds game was the first one, which was just amazing. To be able to say that I saw the Big Red Machine in its last year is really kind of crazy. (laughs) I don't know what other word to use. Just nuts. Because of the historic value of the Big Red Machine. And for those of you who don't know, Big Red Machine in 1978 still had Johnny Bench, Hall of Famer. Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. You had Joe Morgan, Hall of Famer. You had uh, Tony Perez was already gone. Tony Perez is a Hall of Famer, but he was already gone to Montreal. But you had pretty much an all-star in every position. You had... Pete Rose at third, Davey Concepcion at short, Joe Morgan at second, Dan Dreesen at first. He was probably the worst of them. He was still pretty good. He was from South Carolina, Charleston, I believe. Johnny Bench, the catcher. You had George Foster in left, Ken Griffey Sr. in center field. No, 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 excuse me. Cesar Geronimo in center field, Ken Griffey Sr. in right field. And then Tom Seaver was in the rotation. So you had a team that was unbelievable that one year in the 70s, they won two World Series in the 70s. One year they won 108 games, which is two-thirds of their games. Dodgers did that a couple years ago as well. And so I'm very fortunate and I saw the, the, uh, the last year of the Big Red Machine and saw, I remember Joe Morgan and Pete Rose being on deck. And, you know, I don't have – have pictures of that event, but I don't have very many memories. I remember Joe Morgan getting Joe Morgan's autograph, and that was cool uh, on on my Braves Illustrated, my green 1978 Braves Illustrated with a 
drawing of Philip Henry Necro on it with uh, two other drawings of Spawn and Sane. And so I remember that. But just to know that I saw the Big Red Machine and saw those players play, even though I don't have very many memories, uh, pretty good. You know, I mean, that was that was one of the best teams in the history of baseball. And again, you had um, Seaver, Bench, Morgan as Hall of Famers. Perez had already left. Rose should have been in the Hall of Fame. And then you had a lot of very, very good players. Not Hall of Famers, but very, very good players. George Foster, Cesar Geronimo, a great defensive player. Ken Griffey Sr. is a really good player. Played with Atlanta in 1986-87 and beginning of 88. And um, Dan Dreesen, as I said. I mean, just really good talent. And I'm saying all that because it reminds me of the Braves. It reminds me of the Braves now. And the fact, uh, and I said this either last week or the week before, about how, you know, there are some players on this Braves team right now who, if they stay healthy, they could go to the Hall of Fame. I mean, we're talking about Matt Olson, Ozzie Albies, Austin Riley, Ron Acuna. Michael Harris came up early enough to where he could put up numbers that could rival the Hall of Famer numbers. I mean, we're, we're talking about a lot of people here on this team that are like, wow, this, this could really kind of be a special group. And you just don't see that very often. You know, uh, the Yankees in the late 90s, obviously with Jeter and some of those guys. I mean, they, I don't, you know, Posada's not going to go to the Hall of Fame. I mean, Pettit's not probably going to go to the Hall of Fame. You got Rivera and, and Jeter are probably it from that group. Had a lot of really good players. And I don't know if the, all the Braves kids are going to go to the Hall of Fame. By no means is that a given. But they all came up fairly early to where, you know, if they, again, continue on and, and are able to stay healthy, why not? And and you look at the numbers that Riley and, and Olsen are putting up in their early stages of their careers. I mean, Matt's 30. He's a little bit older than Austin, but still, I mean, it's like, golly. He has six, seven more years of this kind of production. He could be knocking on the door of a Hall of Fame career, and that's that's kind of crazy. But anyway, it, it was fun to see that little uh, documentary again as I was preparing for the show. Uh, Johnny Bench, best catcher ever. There's no question about it. I mean, I looked it up. Johnny Bench threw out 43% of his base runners in his career. In his career, he threw out 43% of the would-be base stealers in his career. And that that's just absurd, you know. And he was a uh, he was just uh, he was something. So anyway, I was just watching that a little bit beforehand. All right, um so we'll talk baseball here in a minute. We do have some baseball to talk about in the last segment of this hour. We'll start with the Super Bowl. Kansas City won 25 to 22. By the way, not to bury the lead, Jeff from Gray, I think you win it. Jeff from Gray, good caller, good listener. He said 24-21 Kansas City. We did have someone say 24-21 San Fran, but that is not, of course, what happened. So uh, 24-21, closest to the actual score without going over. And uh, most of us went over. So, Jeff, you'll get a lunch. We'll uh, get with you when you call uh, about that next time. But we had um, some kind of game. Didn't start out very good. Kind of slow to go, but then it was like, wow, this is a really, really good game. And, and you know, a couple things right off the bat. 
Number one, um, Andy Reid is a great coach. Number two, uh, don't bet against Patrick Mahomes. Just, just don't. Just don't. I mean, that, that's uh, – you know, I know he lost one. I mean, he's 3-1 and one in the Super Bowl in the last five years. The only Super Bowl that Kansas City was not in was when the Rams beat the Bengals a couple of years ago. Other than that, they've been in it every year. And Mahomes is just uh, a special player. I think we said last week, you know, that in Super Bowl history, you've had these games where, whether it was Tom Brady against Atlanta in 2017 or Joe Montana back in the 80s, you, you had these games where these type of players just were different where you knew, oh, you better be careful, don't rule them out now. Don't count them out because they'll roll down the field on you in a heartbeat and and win a game. And Mahomes is obviously in that category. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. He he is a he's a special talent. He's uh, unbelievable to watch. He's fun to watch. Last night, of course, it was a defensive game for most of the game, and defense does win championships. And I think as much as we can sit here and give credit to. Patrick Mahomes and, of course, Mikol Hardeman, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, the defense won championship for Kansas City. That and, a, and an ignorant head coach in San Francisco. He's just, uh, he's just not very good. Um, Kyle Shanahan, of course, was the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons. They blew a 28-3 lead, so I don't have a whole lot of love for him at all. He lost the Super Bowl a couple of years ago to Kansas City when he was up by 10. Now he's up by 10 in this game, and he's he's loused up the Super Bowl. I tell you, last night in the third quarter, after they had traded punts a little bit more, and uh, San Francisco still had the lead, I remember thinking, uh, all right, is he going to run the ball now? I know it's third quarter. I know it's not fourth quarter, but why wouldn't he run the ball? You know, Christian McCaffrey finished with 22 runs for 80 yards. It's not a great, a great ratio, obviously. Not a great, you know, yards per carry. But still, 22 carries for 80 yards and eight catches for 10 yards. So he touched the ball 30 times and he had 160 total yards. I, I think that was low. I would have let him run it another eight times. I would have let him run it 30 times. I think Kyle Shanahan made a mistake by not running the ball more, even in the third quarter, to yank that clock down. The game was close. It got closer, obviously, after the, the Chiefs came back and, and then took the lead. But still, it's like, well, you know, why are you, why are you not running the ball more? And I think Tony Romo, who, boy, Tony Romo takes a lot of heat. I, I found him to be pretty good, to be honest with you. But he sure does take a lot of heat. Tony Romo was saying the whole time, run the ball. You know, run the ball. Run. You got you got Christian McCaffrey. And look, that kid's kind of kind of wacko, isn't he? He's just he's just kind of unbelievable. Not many people in the sport that are like Christian McCaffrey that can do the things that he does on the field. I mean, he's just kind of a unicorn in that way. And you know, obviously both offenses were having some struggles at times, not getting kind of going. Uh, 
Um, Travis Kelsey only had one catch in the first half. He had eight in the second half, and obviously was very effective. Kansas City used Patrick Mahomes as a runner more than they have in, in the past, in the immediate past, and that helped him a great deal. Um, his vision, his instincts are hard to even compare. They're really kind of crazy. And, you know, Brock Purdy had a good day. He, I thought he was very good, 23 for 38, not too bad, 255 yards and a touchdown. Um, I just didn't think they called a very good game offensively. And I would have said that even if the 49ers had won at the end. Of course, it wouldn't have mattered if they had won. But I think that since they didn't, you can say, well, did they really do the right thing? And, of course, a lot of people today are getting on the fact that Shanahan, uh, two things. Number one, Shanahan took the ball at first and uh, in overtime and did not want the – the Chiefs to go first, and that's kind of a strategic thing. And and also the fact that Andy Reid, the Chiefs head coach, talked about his uh, analytics guy really looking at things that needed to be done in the overtime and how that helped them out. And, and on top of that, unbelievably, you had certain members of the 49ers team admitting that they didn't know the rules in the overtime. And yet members of the Chiefs were all saying, oh yeah, we knew the we knew the rules of the overtime. We were going at everything we did in the overtime with the knowledge of what had to happen in the overtime. And the 49ers players admitted last night and today uh, they didn't really know what the rules were. And so, you know, and and I, I like to try to keep everything about Georgia teams on here. Of course, Super Bowl is a big deal. So, I mean, obviously, we, you know, break that a little bit. But it, it for me, it does tie back to the Falcons. Coaching means everything. Kyle Shanahan, obviously, is a very good play caller overall. He has had a lot of success in the regular season. Uh, he has been looked at as a coach that's going to win a Super Bowl, much like his dad was thought of in Denver until he finally won one with Horseface. But Shanahan um, just has done some questionable things in his time that really bring up legitimate questions about his coaching acumen. And, and, it, and it gets to where I was thinking last night about, you know, watching Andy Reid out-coach Kyle Shanahan. Coaching means everything. Coaching and a good quarterback and a good defense mean everything. Now, I do believe that defense wins championships. I think Kansas City's defense basically won that game for them last night. Sure, Patrick Mahomes went down the field, found McCole Hardman. Great drive there. Unbelievable overtime period with both teams only having one drive. That was amazing. And yet, I still think Kansas City's defense with how they played against San Francisco Really, it's a big reason why they won. And also the play calling that Andy Reid did and how he approached the overtime. And, you know, it was just, it was interesting, but, but you saw how important coaching is. And so, uh, again, as I'm watching that game as a Falcons fan, 
you say to yourself, God, you hope that if, when the Falcons get back there, they will have a better opportunity and a better mindset and better coaching than they did the last time they were there. Because Dan Quinn and Kyle Shanahan screwed it up. <laughs> the, the, the same thing that 49ers fans are probably saying right now about Kyle Shanahan, well, he shouldn't have taken the ball first in overtime. He should have done more to run the ball later in the game. He should have protected his lead a little bit more. He should have done, you know, and they're saying that because they lost. Are the things that we said after the 28-3 debacle in Houston seven years ago. Same thing. <laughs> Same thing. And that that's where it comes to now for the Atlanta Falcons. You have to pray that Raheem Morris is the right guy. You really do. You have to you have to hope and pray that they have settled on the right guy. Whether it was your guy or not, it doesn't matter. Whether you wanted Bobby Slowick or Ben Johnson or Bill Belichick like me, it doesn't matter anymore. You've got to hope they did the right job because we saw last night that you've got to have good coaching. You've got to have a good quarterback. And, of course, we all know the Falcons have got to find that. And that's as that's as, you know, we're, we're, we're hoping that we're hoping that Raheem Morris is the good coach, right coach, but we know that he's got to pick the quarterback. And then you've got to get a defense. And you know what? Last night, I, I, I said last week, and, and I've said numerous times that every time I watch the Super Bowl, main thing I look at is I see these lines of scrimmage for these teams that have made it all the way, and I compare them to I compare them to what the Falcons have, and it's just not very good. You know, it's like, well, I mean, that's why the Falcons are, are where they are, and these two teams are in the Super Bowl. Last night, I, I looked at Kansas City, and and I I know that the yeah, <laughs> you know, I I know they've got some really good players on defense, but I I looked at the disruptors they have, and and how Kansas City at times just really disrupted things for San Francisco. And and stalled that running game. I mean, I, I I said that I think that Christian McCaffrey should have run more, and I I do, I still do. But I I also believe that Kansas City really shut him down. And you know, to know that that the Carlaftis guy, who who was a great college player, obviously, and and, and had such a uh, a presence last night, and of course of what Chris Jones is for this team. Now, I don't know if the, what the Falcons are going to do this year, but if they want to throw a bunch of money at Chris Jones, I'm not going to holler too much. I don't know if they'd want to do that with Grady Jarrett and David Onyemata, but if they wanted to add Chris Jones to those two, I'd be all for it because, I mean, he's just he's a disruptor. And you have to have people on defense cause havoc. You know, Grady can at times – but, it, it, you know, Jesse Bates at safety is a guy who I don't think there's any question can cause havoc with, with the opponent. But you, you you look at what Chris Jones did last night and, and what he's done for the whole season and for his career, for that matter, and you're like, God, you know, this guy is just a, he's just a pain in the ass to the offense. And the Falcons need that as well. And, and you know, back when – 
the Falcons went to the Super Bowl, obviously, you you had Grady Jarrett, you had Vic Beasley have his career year, you had Dwight Freeney, who's now going into the into the Hall of Fame, and Dwight was a, a, a great player. He was a he was a veteran player, kind of like when the Falcons brought in Biscuit, Cornelius Bennett back in 1998, and had him on that roster that went to the first Super Bowl. You you have to have those kind of players. So, you know, I I did watch that Super Bowl last night with the Falcons in mind, thinking you got to have good coaching because the 49ers didn't and the Chiefs did. You've got to have a great quarterback. Both teams last night had a great quarterback. Uh, Brock Purdy, God bless him. Uh, I I really felt sorry for him, but he, he you know. As long as his coach doesn't get in the way, that kid's got a chance to win a Super Bowl as a, as a quarterback because he's really good. We know how Mahomes is. He's ridiculous. And you got to have a defense that just kicks the opponent's ass. You just have to. And, you know, when, when the Falcons get that, they can be back there. <laughs> but they, you know, they, they, they don't have that right yet. You know, back, in, back when they went, you know, they had – Desmond Trufant, who was a great cornerback. I loved him. I thought he was a great player. They had Keanu Neal, who was pretty good, obviously. Robert Alford had a great big play there. Sean Weatherspoon, a pretty good linebacker, obviously. Paul Warlow, a very physical physical linebacker. I mean, they had some players really – and they had depth there. They had some good depth there that they had created that was, was pretty good. But they just don't have that right yet. So, you know, in watching that game last night, that, that's what I came away from more than anything is that, you know, you've got to have that kind of trifecta of good coaching, great quarterback, and a kick-ass defense. You really do. And they, the Falcons don't. But Kansas City sure does, and they're not finished yet. You know, they're, they're not. I mean, the, the, the Chiefs are, are special. He's young. He's got plenty of more plenty of more years to do more damage and i'm sure he will uh andy reed's coming back he said that today which is not a surprise like their owner said last night <laughs> why would he leave we got mr mahomes under contract for eight more years yeah why would he leave you know even if he's tired and ready to go he can uh, probably do what he needs to do to let his assistants handle as much as he can and and, you know, go from there. But it's, uh, it's a good team. They're going to lose Chris Jones. He's probably going to leave. And that's going to be rough for him. Uh, and that's going to be some attrition that obviously all teams go through. But someone's going to give Chris Jones a fortune, and he deserves it. <laughs> I mean, he's, just, he's an unbelievable player. He's an unreal talent on that line. And, uh, boy, I sure wish he could come to Atlanta. That would be something. The Reddit kid from Philadelphia also is going to be traded, and I wouldn't mind – him coming to Atlanta as well. Uh, he he's uh, he's going to be expensive. There's no question about that. But that kid is uh, is a Philadelphia player and a Philadelphia guy. But from all accounts, over the weekend uh, they were saying that um, Hassan Reddick is going to want out, and he's a sack master. I mean, he had 11 sacks this year. He's had several seasons where he's had uh, double digit sacks. Uh, the last couple of years, he's gone from 12 and a half, 11, 16, and 11. Last four years with Arizona, the Carolina Panthers, and then Philadelphia, he has had uh, 50.5 sacks in the last four years. That's exceptional. So 
that's someone to keep an eye on for the Falcons as well because they need those kind of players. They really do. We'll take a break, come back, and we will uh, talk a little basketball, some basketball over the weekend. Then we'll talk a little baseball, also a little more football with Arthur Blank's comments from Friday. So we look forward to talking about that as well. I'm Bill Shanks. Thanks so much for being with us. Don't forget the Hawks are on tonight uh, against Chicago from Atlanta. We'll have that for you here on the Superstations. I'm Bill Shanks. You're listening to The Bill Shanks Show. Well, last night, Nicole Hardman reminded all of us why we loved him when he was at UGA. Second round pick by the Chiefs back in 2019. For some reason, they... Let him go, but they got him back this year after he started the season with the Jets, thinking he was going to be one of Aaron Rodgers' main targets. That didn't work out. McCall Hardeman for the Dogs back in 2017 had 25 catches for 418 yards, four touchdowns. 2018, he had 35 catches for 543 yards. Seven touchdowns. He was one of those players who kind of knew he had some more work to do at the next level, even if he didn't establish himself as a star. But he had that speed, man. He had that speed, and he has been really good. 538 yards, first year with Kansas City, then 560, then 693, then 297. And then this year, he was with the Jets and the Chiefs, and... He uh, saved the best for last. He had a really good game last night. He had three catches for 57 yards, including the game winner there at the end. And everybody, of course, in the Bulldog Nation is very happy for Mikol Hardeman. Kid can fly. He always had that speed, and he was a a special player last night for for Kansas City. I don't think they're going to let him go again. I think he's worth keeping around, don't you? And uh, as they go for a three-peat next year, he'll be a big part of that machine for the Chiefs, no doubt about it. Travis Kelsey will be back, he said today. No big surprise there because the spotlight's on him only when he plays. And, of course, uh, Patrick Mahomes, what can you say? Unbelievable game for sure. Friday, Arthur Blank had a Zoom press conference with members of the Falcons beat writers of the media, D. Orlando Ledbetter, Josh Kendall, two of the folks who come on our show, also uh, Michael Rossine from ESPN, and a couple of the the uh, yes women who write for the AtlantaFalcons.com website. In that press conference, Arthur Blank said that he never made an offer to Bill Belichick, and uh, we were told this on Friday by D. Orlando Ledbetter of the AJC, who promptly said when I asked him that he didn't believe that, neither do I. I watched the entire press conference. It was about a half hour or so, and I watched it on, uh, I think, Friday night after the show. And I, 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 I wish I had a different feeling about this ownership. I, I wish I had a different belief and faith in this ownership. I just don't. And again, I, I, I say all this to repeat, which I'll probably say a million times between now and August. I pray and hope that 
Raheem Morris, the new head coach, and Terry Fontenot, the general manager, will be allowed to do their jobs without interference. And I, I think that Arthur Blank, uh, after watching his press conference, I mean, he's a very nice man. He's very polite and cordial to the writers. Wasn't very polite to D. Orlando Ledbetter. But anyway, um, I, I, I just think he wants to be included in everything. And this um, notion that, you know, the, the one thing I wish could be asked is about the collaborative approach to the decision-making process. And I'm not criticizing the reporters for not asking this question because it is a very pointed question, but it is, I think, a legitimate and fair question to ask of Arthur Blank and the Atlanta Falcons hierarchy. And that is, you have stressed whether it was with Dan Quinn or Arthur Smith, whether it was Thomas Dimitrov or Terry Fontenot, you have stressed numerous times. It is almost a, a, an organizational plea for collaborative decision-making. Why has that approach not worked, and yet you're still trying so desperately to hang on to that style of management and I truly believe that is a fair question to ask I really do now I I wouldn't expect any answer because they don't really want to even admit the fact that they've had a rough time but I mean in the last 11 years they've had two winning seasons so consequently with their management style and with what Arthur Blank says is the prototype for the NFL of having a, a collaborative decision-making process, why has it not worked up to this point, and therefore why are you continuing to do it compared to having one man be in charge? And, of course, I, I think the, the reason for that and the answer to that is the people who were still employed by Arthur Blank, who would have been squeezed out in a different type of approach, didn't want to lose their jobs. <laughs> I mean, how easy and simple is that? So, you know, I, I still have my skepticism about Arthur Blank, and I, I just don't trust him. And I think he is going to be tempted to go down the hall and talk with Rich McKay and... Rich McKay is still involved, and all that stuff when they made the announcement about Raheem Morris was suspicious anyway. Why are you announcing Raheem Morris but making a point to try to let everybody know that Rich McKay is going to be out of the way when he's not because he's still going to be on the NFL competition committee? And another question I think would be fair to Arthur Blank is how can you say that Rich McKay is going to be out of the way and no longer involved in the football operations of this organization when he is still going to be on the competition committee, which is about the rules. And uh, I think that's very, very fair. So anyway, it's not going to be asked and that's fine, but that that's kind of the way it, the way it is. And, and again, the, the press conference on Friday was a lot of soup. Hawks beat the Rockets on Saturday after their win over the Sixers on Friday. They are now 24-29. and 
on the year. They have a game with Chicago tonight at 7.30, which is very interesting because the Hawks are in 10th place in the Eastern Conference. They're a game back of the ninth place Bulls. So, obviously, they could catch Chicago with a win tonight. Chicago's 25-28 and 28 on the year, so they would have the same record, obviously, if Atlanta wins tonight. The Hawks also play at Charlotte on Wednesday. Charlotte's kind of cashed it in for the season. They uh, are reassigning Mitch Kupchak as their general manager. And, of course, they made some moves uh, before the trade deadline to pretty much pare down their team. Toronto will be in Atlanta on Friday to play the Hawks. And, of course, they are not what they once were. And they have made some trades, of course. And they are behind Atlanta. So you have three games this week, Chicago, Charlotte, and Toronto, that if the Hawks could win those three games, they'd have a five-game winning streak, and they would be 27-29. and 29. This team is trying to get to 500, and they have a chance to do so. So tonight's game will be very important, and we'll see how that goes. Georgia lost again, their fifth loss in a row. They are now 14-10 and 10 overall in the season, 4-7 and seven in the SEC. They lost to Arkansas by three points on Saturday, 78-75. They will now have a couple of days off and will not play again until this Saturday at 1 o'clock when they host the Florida Gators at Stegman Coliseum. Georgia, of course, has just struggled mightily, and we talked about how that SEC record did not need to get below, or rather, yeah, below 500, and 4-7 and is not too good, so... They now have lost to a couple of teams that they probably should have won and beat. Georgia Tech also struggling. I mean, basketball in this state is not good. They are 10-14, 3-10 in the conference. They lost to Louisville on Saturday by eight po- uh, rather, I'm sorry, 12 points, 79-67. Their third loss in a row. They've lost 11 of their last 13 games. Louisville is not a very good team in the ACC. But Georgia Tech lost on the road. The Yellow Jackets will now be at Notre Dame on on uh, Wednesday at 7 o'clock. And so we, um, we'll see if the Jackets can get back on track. They've really struggled, though, in the SEC, 3-10. and 10. And Georgia, you know, they just continue to have these little stretches where it's like they disappear. And that's the problem. Guess what we have starting on Friday? College baseball. Yes, sir. Georgia opens up against UNC Asheville on Friday at 3 o'clock at Foley Field. Georgia Tech opens the season on Friday at 4 against Radford. And we will actually have this Sunday game for you from Foley Field here on the Superstations, except in Brunswick, as the Dogs uh, have their opening weekend of the season with their new head coach. So looking forward to that for sure. But yeah, Georgia and Georgia Tech, the college baseball season opens opens this week, and that is a good sign here as we get into mid-February. All right, we're going to take a break, come back. Speaking of baseball, we'll talk a little bit about Kylie McDaniel's prospect list. Kylie's actually going to join us tomorrow at 4 on the show. We're going to talk to you a little bit about what he had to say about the Braves farm system, which is very interesting. He's very interesting thoughts on the Braves farm system and who may help out for Atlanta in the coming year. So we'll take a break, come back with that and more on this Monday right after this. Almost quarter till top of the hour. Thanks for joining us here on this Monday. 
All right, baseball season. We're two days away from pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training, so we're going to latch on to everything we can to talk baseball. Tomorrow again, Kylie McDaniel will join us at 4 o'clock to talk about what we're getting ready to talk about, which are his thoughts on the Atlanta Braves farm system. He rated the Braves as having the third worst farm system in baseball. And that's not very good. However, compared to some of the others who rate the Braves pitching in the farm system fairly high, Kylie has a couple of people in the top three that are really, really interesting. And I know one of them has caught my eye. I'm not as high on the other one, but I do believe that uh, it's worth kind of taking a look at. The first prospect for the Braves in on his list is Hurston Waldrop. No big surprise there. Hurston is um, a potential impact player in 2024. Now, a lot of people have A.J. Smith-Shalver at number one for the Braves. Kylie does not, and I'll be interested to ask him why that is on Tuesday's show. He has A.J. Smith-Shalver at number four. So really kind of curious about that. Now, two is Ignacio Alvarez, who is a shortstop. And then number three is Drake Baldwin, who is a catcher. Most of you probably haven't heard of these two, but they were pretty high draft picks a couple of years ago. Let me read you what Kylie wrote. Alvarez and Baldwin are both undervalued in the public realm, obviously, as we we're talking about, in part due to being relatively unknown when they were drafted. And they are both near the top of my personal picks-to-click list for the 2024 season. Alvarez was a late-rising SoCal junior college infielder a player demographic that rarely goes in the top few rounds, so is often under-scouted, and the 2022 class who in the fifth round because of his standout hit a tool. He was young for a junior college freshman. His hit tool and approach have played even better than expected as a pro, and he's either a passable shortstop or a good third baseman defensively. Now, I, I want to bring up this kid's uh, numbers, and the reason why I think this is kind of interesting is the Braves have, obviously, a, a, a veteran shortstop right now. And, you know, Orlando Arcia had a very good year overall last last season. He trailed off there at the end, and the batting average and the OBP really suffered. But for the most part, I mean, you know, he, he, he was an all-star, and he had a really good year for Atlanta overall. I'll say that. And the, the Braves – would probably not be opposed to having a a young shortstop be ready to take over for Arcia sometimes very soon. And Ignacio Alvarez could be that player. Last year in high A Rome, he hit two eighty four with a three ninety five on base percentage. A 391 slugging percentage. He only had seven home runs and 501 plate appearances, but 66 RBI and 16 stolen bases. So, um, look, if, if this kid, who, by the way, turns 21 on April the 11th, so in two months, start of the minor league season, he'll turn 21 years old. He'll probably go to double A. If Ignacio Alvarez goes to double A, 
and as a 21-year-old does very well, he could be setting himself up for a potential starting gig for Atlanta in a couple of years. We always love to bring up young players who you may never have heard about, and we've done that before. I think we probably were the first ones that told you about guys like Austin Riley and you know Max Freed and some others who were, were just able to catch our eye, that's for sure. And I can't wait to see this kid down at spring training. Ignacio Alvarez, I-G-N-A-C-I-O Alvarez. He's 5'11", 190, and fifth rounder two years ago. But he's an interesting prospect, and Kylie has him at number two on his, on his Braves prospect list. Then number three is Drake Baldwin, the catcher, and – you know, Baldwin hit 270 last year, and, and there's no question was, the, the the rankings are probably based a little bit on OBP, and that's fine. But last year, Drake Baldwin played three games at Gwinnett, 14 games at Mississippi, and most of his time in Rome. He hit 270 with a 385 on base percentage, 16 home runs, and 61 runs batted in. Now, this guy's a little bit older. Uh, he is... Uh, 23 years old in March, but he also will probably be in Mississippi to start the year. He had a very good run there in Mississippi for a short time of two weeks at the end of last season, but it's always good to have a young catcher being developed in the minor league. So I, I think that's a plus for the Atlanta Braves. Now, he's got A.J. smith Shaw at number four, J.R. Ritchie, who is a fine prospect, but he had Tommy John surgery last year, so the Braves hope to get him back sometime this year. He is number five. Spencer Schwellenbach is a kid that we've had on the show before when he was coming back from Tommy John surgery. Then we had him on the show last spring training as well. Schwellenbach was a kid out of Nebraska who um, was mainly a shortstop. He was kind of a Jacob deGrom type. He had uh, some hitting skills, and he played shortstop like deGrom did down in, in Florida. And uh, Nebraska put him on the mound, and all of a sudden the Braves fell in love with him as a pitcher. But he came to Atlanta and had Tommy John surgery, so they had to go through that. And now he's kind of ready to go from all accounts. That is a very interesting prospect who could also have something to do with this season. He is one that I know um, I've talked with him about it. I know Mr. Anthopoulos likes Spencer Schwellenbach, and and I'm ready to see him uh, perhaps be brought over for a little look-see in the big league camp as well. Luis Guanapa is the center fielder who was last year's big international prospect. And Jose Perdomo, who they just spent $5 million on, he's the eighth best prospect. Then pitchers, Owen Murphy, Cade Kuehler, Drew Hackenberg, another international prospect, Diego Benitez, Ambioris Tavares, another infielder from the international market, and then Dylan Dodd and Adam Mayer, a couple of pitchers. Of course, we saw Dodd last year. Um but it's 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 a better prospect I think people give him credit for. And, you know, here's the other part about this, and, and I think this is very important for all Braves fans to keep in mind. When people say, well, their farm system sucks, well, let, let's remember all the, all the players over the last five to seven years that have been brought up by this organization to be a big part of the success of the last six years when the Braves have won the division six consecutive seasons. Obviously, you had Ozzie Albies, Dansby Swanson, Austin Riley, Michael Harris, Ronald Acuna. You know, you 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 had um, 
pitchers like uh, Bryce Elder, like Max Freed, who even though he was drafted by the Padres, was developed by the Braves. You've had a lot of players, Spencer Strider, of course, who have come up and graduated for the Meyer Leagues that have produced a, a six-straight division championship team, and they got a damn good shot to win number seven in a row this year. So uh, that farm system has also been able to produce some trade bait. And now that we have the first baseman, second baseman, shortstop, third baseman, right fielder, center fielder, and left fielder, and catcher, I mean, the only spot that doesn't have a long-term situation is DH. Braves can let go of Marcelo Zuna after this year. They have an option for 2025, but they could change DH after this year. The rest of that team could be in place for a while. That means if you have talent coming out from the minor leagues, you can use that as trade bait. And that's extremely important for this team moving forward now. Trade bait, to make trades to improve the team when necessary. And I think the Braves are doing that with this farm system. I can't wait to get down to spring training next month and see some of these kids that I have not seen. But um, I'm looking forward to having Kylie on the show tomorrow to talk more about it because I was very excited that in his top three, he added two position players. Most people say the Braves' top prospects are all pitchers. Now, it's interesting to me that a, a player who the Braves uh, have in the minor leagues is not even in his top 15, and, and that is a, a kid by the name of David McCabe, who last year um, hit 276 with a 386 on base percentage, but he is getting ready to turn 24, and that's probably the reason why Kylie did not have him in his top 15 for the Braves. And he, he he's a good prospect. He's an interesting prospect. Third baseman, first baseman, and shortstop. But again, he might be trade bait. The Braves don't need a third baseman. The Braves don't need a first baseman. And they don't really need a shortstop, especially if uh, the other young man, Ignacio Alvarez, becomes that type of player who could maybe take over for Orlando Arcia one day. So, um, Again, we're getting close to spring training. We're two days away from pitchers and catchers reporting. I want you as Braves fans to kind of start having more of an idea of some of these young players in the farm system because it's important. Even if it's trades, even if it's putting them in trades, it's important to think about with this team as they try to win another World Series. The stronger that farm system is, the better chance they have of trying to make a trade that can help the big league team this year. You're listening to The Bill Shanks Show.